Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to uh, the United States uh, Study Center online webinar series. Uh, my name's Ashley Townsend, and I am the Director of Foreign Policy and Defense at the United States Program. Uh, thank you for joining us today, and it's my great pleasure uh, to, uh, to um, be with you all for the launch of my colleague Brendan Thomas's noon, Brendan Thomas Noon's latest report, Tech Wars, US-China Technology Competition and What It Means for Australia. Uh, I think everyone is able to see me now. Please uh, let us know in the public chat if there's any issues with the visuals, um, but we're going to get underway. Before I introduce the panelists, uh, I would just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia, the University of Sydney and the United States Study Centre stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay the respects to the elders of that country, past, present and future. Ladies and gentlemen, the topic of US-China uh, technology competition and more broadly US-China strategic competition couldn't be um, more uh, pressing and more front and center of all of our thinking right now. Uh, since the Trump administration uh, took the White House back in 2016, we've seen a number of uh, new uh, government initiatives, both driven by the White House, but also driven by Congress with regards to strengthening the United States technology and, and innovation edge, and also um, with regards to protecting American domestic R&D and technology vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. The framework of all of this has been, uh, and it's a trite term, uh, but a new Cold War that's emerging between the US and China, which is a phrase I think has some problems we'll get to in the discussion, which gets at the heart of the fact that something different is happening between the US and China now. Both countries appear locked in a form of escalating rivalry and technology, although it's often uh, um, uh, has previously been considered peripheral to this competition, now finds itself really at the heart of US-China rivalry and therefore of the sorts of strategic policy issues that countries like Australia need to consider. I think a lot of the frame for US-China technology competition in this country has been around the issue of decoupling and the issues of our reliance on China as a trading partner and our reliance on global supply chains and the vulnerabilities that that brings. Um, of course, the onset of COVID-19 has really sharpened that issue in the minds of many Australians and many, many around the world as we are facing the biggest shock to our global supply chains than any of us have experienced since the Second World War. Uh, but Brendan in his report uh, uh, today um, gets at a different issue, which is much more strategic and much more connected to the heart really of both of our countries, Australia and the United States, capacity to generate cutting edge technology, innovation and strong research and industrial bases that can precipitate that into the future. That is not so much an issue of decoupling supply chains vis-a-vis -vis China, but untangling the global networks of universities, research center, technology centers, and industrial um, generation of, of technology and, uh, and research and development, which is a part of the global system. In fact, there's a line in Brendan's report that says fundamentally US-China technology wars will question essentially the way the globalization unfolds into the future and the way therefore that the US-Australia alliance can respond. We have with us this morning uh, an extremely high quality panel um, representing two major views from the United States and Australia, um, both respectively on defence technology and on research and development um, uh, on the Australian side. I'm very pleased to be joined again uh, with you, uh, Bill. Uh, Bill Greenwald is Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council within the Brent Stokoff Centre at the International Security Program there, where he focuses on barriers to international and industrial cooperation. But Bill also served in senior positions uh, at the Pentagon and in Congress, as well as in the defence industry, uh, most recently as Deputy Undersecretary of Defence for Industrial Policy. Uh, here, or there rather, in Canberra, Leslie, we have you, and I'm very pleased to have you again at one of our US Study Center events. Uh, Professor Leslie Seabeek is Professor of Practice in Cybersecurity, as well as CEO of the Cyber Institute at the Australian National University. She started out as the CEO of the Institute in 2018, and before that, she was Chief Investment and Advisory Officer at the Digital Transformation Agency 
in Canberra, arriving there from the Bureau of Meteorology, where she served as Chief Information Officer uh, from mid-2014 to mid-2017. And last but absolutely by no means least is, is my esteemed colleague, uh, Brendan Thomas-Noon. Uh, Brendan is a research fellow at the Foreign Policy and Defense Program at the US Study Center, uh, and more importantly, has really headed up the center's work on national security and technology issues uh, for the past few years, in particular focusing on the US national technology and innovation base, the US's third offset strategy and what that means for allies. And now today, his latest report, Tech Wars, US-China technology competition and what it means for Australia. Uh, Bill, Leslie, Brendan, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. And for everyone out there, the way that we're going to proceed now is for me to have a bit of a discussion with Brendan, which will allow him to lay out the main judgments uh, and, uh, and, and takeaways of his new report. I know you've all got a copy of it. It's available at the hyperlink to this event's invitation. After that, we're going to bring Bill and Leslie into the conversation, uh, but I want to turn over to all of you um, a, a little bit after um, uh, a little bit after 10.30, 10.35 in order to have time for questions uh, and feedback from the audience. We've already received a number from those of you who submitted them in advance, but please, if you have a question, feel free to send it through to the chat and our events team will triage those and, and we'll, we'll circulate them to the panelists. So Brendan, without uh, any further ado, um, you argue in this report that technology is the, the defining element in the new US-China strategic competition and that this will take the form of a slow disentangling of technological in, in integration between the US and China in coming years. Can you tell us a little bit more about why uh, you see technology as being the heart of all of this? Yeah, thank you, Ash, and thanks, Bill and Leslie, for uh, joining us this morning, um, helping launch the report, and really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I think that uh, technology has become the defining element of U.S.-China competition because I think to uh, certain degrees, both countries have come to internalize and recognize um, the long-term linkages and consequences between scientific progress, technological adaptation, and in the U.S. government words, national power and prosperity. Now, that's a big, bold claim, and I think it you know, you talk to certain policymakers or politicians, um, especially in the U.S., they would have different uh, views on that. But I think that there's this kind of broad shift to recognizing that some of the new technologies that are uh, uh, in the near term going to uh, come upon us, everything from machine learning to new sensory technologies, new levels of connectivity, um, will both drive the next phase of economic growth um, they will have governance implications, and they will also have, obviously, military implications as well. Um, and I think these sort of that this kind of realization has really permeated um, probably both governments, um, obviously in different ways. There's a little bit of history here as well. Obviously, both countries have long histories in terms of their relationship with technology and its place in national competition. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, has long placed technological progress and investment at the heart of its economic model and uh, has obviously more recently expertly managed their interaction with the last wave of digital technology, including the internet and tech connectivity in the early 1990s. I'll come back to that in just a moment. And obviously the United States has, uh, you know, a long history and role with technology and has long placed uh, technological progress kind of at the heart of not only of its national story, but also of its national uh, uh, competitiveness, particularly during the Cold War. Uh, it can trace the roots of this kind of ideas back to Van Vandevar Bush, who was really the architect of US scientific, scientific infrastructure during and following World War II. Uh, who really set up the National Science Foundation and the National Laboratory Systems. Um, and so these, you know, both countries are not new to obviously this kind of competition, but it's come back into vogue really because of the return of great power competition. Um, and this kind of obviously recognition, as I said, these kind of new wave of technologies. But there's a few features I think that make this a little bit different and possibly more complex. Um, than the early phases of the Cold War. Not that I'm necessarily uh, attributing that Cold War term, but just as a comparison. 
Um, obviously, many technologies uh, that will be consequential in the near future are dual use. So that means that they have both civilian and military applications. And that in opposed to the early part of the Cold War, they're obviously held or being progressed within large parts of the private sector today as, as opposed to um, the early 1950s when many of the new technologies were being driven by government research laboratories and that type of thing. But I think that that being said, governments still play an important role and we can come back to that a little bit later. Um, another kind of aspect is that many of these companies and in, including universities um, that are driving some of these new technologies have really become quite global actors, I think, in the last 30 years. They're selling to global markets, they're seeking global capital, uh, they're seeking global partnerships and as well as talent. And this is sort of making uh, the uh, the great power competition lens that is now being kind of placed on all of this, you can kind of start to see the complexities and how states are, and as I argue in the paper, really now starting to apply, in the case of the United States, certain regulations, administrative uh, reforms, uh, much more of a slow untangling of how some of these companies have operated and universities have operated, in the case of Australia, over the last 30 years. Um, one last point here is I think that to a certain degree, the United States is now catching up to where the China has been for the last 30 years. Um, I wrote a dissertation uh, about seven years ago looking at how China had really um, managed its interaction with the spread of digital connectivity uh, in the early 1990s. And it was fascinating at every level. Um, China had basically sought to impose controls, regulations, um, different rules on how, which companies could come in and set up digital um, enterprises within China, what content that could be displayed, what foreign investment rules were controlled, and even down to the infrastructure with the telecommunications cables coming in and connecting to China, those had to be, have government kind of controls on them. Um, the United States obviously had a different approach. It was very liberal and very open and for a large degree was spreading those technologies or as its companies were. Now with the China now catching up in terms of certain technological um, spending, um, I like to always point out that China is set to spend as much as the five eyes countries combined in national R&D spending in PPP terms probably by the mid to late 2020s, although we'll see how COVID-19 kind of affects those projections. Um, this is kind of, they're, they're catching up. So the US now has an actual technological competitor in many of these uh, kind of emerging fields. And so the United States regulation is now catching up to that. Yeah, uh, th look, that's a great point um, for me to turn over, Brendan, back to you around some of the actions that the US government, uh, both the Trump administration and Congress in the last few years have taken in order to strengthen protections of US technology. But before I do that, I just want for the benefit of, of all of our watchers this morning, um, read an extract uh, from the opening of your report where you've written, quote, the US government has set about expanding its definition of what constitutes the industries, individuals and knowledge of its national security innovation base. This enlarged understanding and the beginnings of a whole of government approach through various reforms and reforms rather and initiatives to protect uh, this, intel, uh, this um, industrial base will transform the terms of globalization, international supply chains, and even the US-Australia alliance. The likely result will be a further step in the transformation of the alliance from a purely geopolitical arrangement into a geoeconomic one as well. Brendan, there's a lot in that statement, and I think it captures both what the US has done that is forward leaning with regards to protection, as well as the impact that that is going to have specifically on Australia. Could you walk us through some of those uh, protection reforms? Yeah, absolutely. So there's been a number of reforms. Uh, and as you said, Ash, uh, really, in my the core tenet of my argument is more or less that the national security strategy um, that was issued by the Trump administration in 2017, um, the 
elements of the US government, including Congress and the executive branch have executed on a lot of the things that have been said in the national security strategy. And it was funny at the time, there was a lot of skepticism because obviously President Trump came out and gave a speech that was completely opposite of what, or not opposite, but did not really touch on a lot of the things that the national security strategy said, kind of casting doubt on whether this document would really matter. Uh, but I think that the report I've kind of tried to argue that actually the president matters uh, a lot in circum certain circumstances, but obviously there's a lot of things that can happen and be pushed by Congress as well as other parts of the executive branch. So the key thing I think that happened in the NSS in terms of what we're talking about here is that they redefined or expanded the definition of what constituted the United States defense industrial base to what they call the national security innovation base, really bringing in academia, the national laboratories, startups in Silicon Valley, redefining that all of those actors and the people in, in them now were critical to um, the inputs to U.S. national security and uh, the technology that then makes that up. And then there's been a series of reforms um, kind of pushed both by Congress, but some also by different parts of the executive branch since then. The first was that Congress reformed CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Um, that is similar to Australia's Foreign Investment Review Board. Um, and some of the re reforms there were essentially um, gave CFIUS more power, more money, and also allowed them now purview over uh, non-controlling investments in basically startups um, within the United States. Uh, and as I said at the beginning, that a lot of these dual-use um, technologies are being pioneered and are at the cutting edge in the private sector, a lot of them also in, um, in startups in, in the United States. And there was a very influential report from the Defense Innovation Unit, which is a Pentagon um, office in Silicon Valley that basically detailed how foreign investment was being weaponized in a way um, or selectively used to invest in a lot of these key technologies and startups. Um, not only controlling that stake, but also locking them out effectively of the um, Pentagon's um, acquisition apparatus. So that was a major reform. Uh, there's also been export control reform pushed by Congress um, and called the Export Control Reform Act that was in the 2018 National Defense Authorization Act. Um, we can come back to that a little bit later because I think there's, there's a lot there, but essentially the, that bill really charged the Commerce Department to uh, reform, broadly reform U.S. export controls that were in the dual-use dual fields and created um, found, uh, two lists of new technologies that were to be controlled. One, foundational technologies, another one, uh, what's called emerging technologies. Um, a few of the other kind of initiatives as well, um, and I think this is what kind of drives it more to a whole of government response, although I think that um, that is a tricky term. I, I think it's probably patchwork still, but that's definitely becoming more of a whole of government response is the Justice Department's, uh, what they've called the China Initiative. This started under U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions back in 2018, but essentially it was a whole um, initiative within DOJ that was going to clamp down on Chinese IP theft, um, as well as enforce existing laws and regulations around um, transparency about where scientists in the United States were getting their funding. Um, there's been some pretty well-known cases, some of them I deal detail in the report around um, Harvard professors, Charles Lieber, who was a uh, head of Harvard's chemistry department, um, also being involved in the China's Thousand Talents program. Um, this is a pretty major initiative. Uh, it involved DOJ hosting a conference at CSIS uh, for one day that was very well publicized where they uh, Attorney General Barr and Christopher Way, the head of the FBI, as well as other prosecutors, um, laid out that they were trying to prosecute cases in every state. Um, there was a thousand ongoing investigations by the FBI uh, and that they have basically doubled, I think, to the year today, the number of prosecutions they've leveled um, in terms of, of, of criminal prosecutions in this field. So it's a pretty major initiative. Lastly, I'll just go into immigration measures. Obviously, the news um, in the last couple of weeks is that the United States has officially um, banned PLA-associated uh, STEM students from studying in the United States. 
Um, that estimated about 3,000 3, students in the United States will probably have to leave um, their, uh, their courses in education and their postgraduate work because they have some sort of association with the PLA. But this really goes back to the beginning of the Trump administration in 2017, gradually making it more difficult in certain areas for Chinese um, students, but also foreign students in general to study STEM in the United States. And there's a vast array of uh, of kind of much more bureaucratic and um, uh, administrative measures that the United States uh, State Department and other services were exerting on um, on these to basically student visas. And there's a few others that I missed. Uh, you know, the National Science Foundation, for example, has issued new regulation around um, where, what money and what transparency you have to provide if you're taking money from NSF grants. Uh, there's also the whole Huawei story, which I tried to actually avoid in some ways because I thought that that was um, a major part of the story, but tried to shed light on a lot of other measures that obviously um, the US government's putting in place. Yeah, Brendan, I, I want to in a moment turn and bring Bob onto this uh, conversation as well and, and look at the other side of the coin, so to speak. I mean, all of this so far um, uh, that we've discussed is focused on how the US is cracking down and protecting and trying to build better walls around leakage of um, technology and intellectual property uh, to China that may be damaging. Um, before I turn over to the promotion side or to look at what countries, uh, what the US is doing or should be doing and how Australia should be working with it to also promote and advance its own technology. I just wanna ask you about the effectiveness of these protection measures, um, particularly things like the new restrictions on um, Chinese nationals or at least PLA affiliated Chinese nationals in the United States, but also I think, and, and where there's a point of difference with Australia in terms of the prosecutions around um, US uh, uh, based um, academic academics and, uh, and and technology um, technology personnel that are um, breaking the increasingly strong regulations uh, are these designed to serve as warnings I mean obviously there should be a deterrent effect there's an element of punishment there but are they working is this a good approach or is it not getting at the heart of the problem the immigration one um, definitely isn't. I think on the face of it, I I would argue that having PLA, if, you know, affiliated researchers in the United States working on high technology and STEM subjects, um, you know, is probably uh, not in the U.S. national interest, um, and nor is it probably in Australia's. However, um, it's also using a hammer to what should probably be a much more targeted reform um, where they are banning or making it more difficult for a whole range of foreign students, Chinese, Indian, wherever, um, to study these subjects in the US. Um, and I think that is quite harmful to US competitiveness in the future. Um, the data sort of shows, and I detail in the report, that many of these students want to stay and work and study further in the United States um, or elsewhere. Uh, they do not necessarily want to go back to um, China. Uh, they want to, um, you know, contribute and they probably eventually want paths to citizenship in some reform. So, uh, and there's plenty of work, by the way, as well, the, the cancelling of the H-1B visa, um, which was being used to fill niche technology skills gaps in the United States that um, the Trump administration is now rumoring to halt just, I think, this morning or yesterday, there was news around that, um, is that there's not necessarily a ton of American domestic students to fill these gaps in that there was a lot of people coming in there to work on these skills. So I think there's some, some of the other reforms I detailed, I think were probably overdue and, and good and good. CFIUS well, yeah, CFIUS on that, Brendan, another yeah. one I wanted to, to just ask you about specifically is the, the strengthening of export control regulations. I mean, obviously ITAR and export controls have always yeah. been issues, particularly for Australian defense industry, trying to collaborate with the United States, US defense firms and US Department of Defense on projects, uh, which is something that um, Bill in his time uh, in the Department of Defense sort of worked to, to, uh, to create a legislative framework 
to bring allies further into the tent, so to speak, but the tightening of regulations both now and, and in the future with regards to export controls around a greater number of areas, including basic and foundational research, Brendan, as you say, might be on the cards. Uh, this extraterritoriality approach, is that going to work or is it going to turn important allies away from further and, and better collaboration with the US? Yeah, so the uh, export controls, critically, what's happened is that the Congress has passed the reform bill, and this is now with the Bureau of Industry and Security, who are really trying to work out with industry input how these new rules will work. So we've only got one, uh, there's two main changes, I think, that have happened. Basically, the creation of emerging and foundational technology lists. Emerging technology essentially uh, mimics the Made in China 2025 technology list, things like artificial intelligence and robotics, advanced manufacturing, these sort of uh, new emerging technologies um, that largely aren't controlled as of yet. So um, that, that's one list. The other one, and I think is much more, will probably impact allies potentially much more is the foundational technology list. Now, Congress did not specify what foundational technologies were. They've given that power to the Commerce Department, the Bureau of Industry and Security, um, to my understanding. And this could uh, range a whole cross, a whole range of technologies. Foundational is considered things that are already kind of present or the kind of building blocks of other technologies. The definition is very open. You could see... Uh, dual use controls put on semiconductors, for instance, which are part of all kind of computing systems. But it also could be the founding blocks of CRISPR, which is a gene editing kind of technology and that will be used in combination with other things to build new medical um, kind of services and technologies. So the expansion potentially of to a lot of these other foundational technologies, which could encompass kind of basic research, I think could have the unintended consequence of flowing onto allies that are quite closely linked with uh, with the United States' scientific in scientific infrastructure, like Australia. Um, but we 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 don't know yet. And I'll just I'll finish off the second point. I think that's uh, that's critical here is the switch in the U.S. Um, export control regime from specifications to end use. So. Basically, right now, if I was to sell you uh, a five nanometer chip, uh, but uh, that would be okay, but I can't sell you a three nanometer one, for instance. And that's very black and white. Those are kind of the way export control rules have usually been written. I know what I can export to you and I know what I can't. Um, changing it to end use is much more broad and will probably introduce a lot more risk into the system, right? So the one rule, uh, they've issued one rule so far in this regard, which was on satellite, um, sorry, machine learning algorithms that can be used to analyze satellite imagery. Um, and obviously there's a concern, this is a dual use technology, you can use for targeting and that sort of thing, but it can also be used for traffic conditions and you know, all sorts of other things. The rule they issued had four points. Three of them were uh, basic machine learning uh, kind of conditions that would be applicable to many different types of machine learning algorithms. Only the fourth one was specific to satellite imagery. Um, so it becomes, so basically the point being is that um, if you're trying to export that technology, you might be very unsure in terms of the end user where that's going and, and hence where they might sell it onto. Um, rather than kind of having a much more black and white version of a knowing where the specification kind of lies. So, yeah, Bill, I'm going to turn over to you here because uh, you know one of the uh, the the, the um, focuses that you had when you were still working in, in defense was the national the NTIB, the National Technology and Industrial Base Legislation, an effort to broaden that out to include countries like Australia. <clears throat> that was about bringing allies into the tent. It was also about uh, ensuring a U.S. competitive technological advantage within the alliance going forward vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on whether you think some of the measures of technological promotion, uh, protection rather, that Brendan has just described um, are inhibiting that process or could be done differently in order to provide a better collective benefit for all of the Five Eyes countries. Oh, happy to take a look at that. Um, essentially, uh, Congress has a hard time differentiating. And uh, because of that, there are a lot of real potential problems with 
export control reform or CFIUS ref, uh, reform. I mean, Congress wanted to differentiate and, and, and target China, and but it didn't. It, 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 for whatever reasons, it wrote the language in, in a broader way. And that has a real potential of tripping up our allies. So concepts like the NTIB were designed to try to get out in front of that and create kind of a collective um, uh, uh, trusted community or a bubble in which you know, our industries could cooperate. And so how that fleshes out in the future is gonna be, is going to be uh, hugely important because it's very possible that these type of uh, extraterritorial uh, export controls, however they're implemented, could uh, make it harder for us to cooperate unless there's some type of an exemption put in it up front. Sorry, I was just muted there. Um, you know, assuming that problem can be uh, can be addressed by a future administration and future congresses that uh, effectively provide uh, more political support for the breaking down of some of those barriers with trusted allies like Australia. I, I want to ask you about the actual efforts that we haven't heard so far about today, which is to foster technology and technological edge and to strengthen the US's own domestic R&D base. Um, there's a line in Brendan's report that says no major government initiatives in the United States have materialized since the previous administration's 2014 third offset strategy in order to double down on new strategic investments in R&D. Do you share that view? And, and uh, uh, is there more that can and needs to be done on the domestic side in the US? I, I share the view that the United States since the end of the Cold War has pretty much unilaterally disarmed and has carried through innovation at a very incremental uh, slow pace. And uh, there were a lot of great ideas that were, were starting to germinate in uh, uh, the third offset strategy. I think what you're starting to see buried in a, in a uh, slight increase in uh, uh, S&T spending is the, the beginning of more prototypes being produced uh, to test and validate uh, some of these concepts, but absolutely correct, there has not been a, a shift into uh, uh, acquiring new uh, it, uh, disruptive uh, types of uh, technologies that the United States is going to need to be to uh, uh, address its uh, future needs. And why, Bill, is that the case, do you think? Is it a question of dollars and cents? Is it a question of political support? I think the, the, the culture and, and the politics in the United States are still uh, trying to get a, uh, its arms around the really the change in this whole great power competition idea. And uh, uh, we have a, a, a system designed that's slow, methodical, bureaucratic, takes 15 to 20 years to deliver weapon systems capability uh, in an exquisite manner. And what's really needed now is quick prototyping, uh, five-year delivery type of uh, programs that we had in the early Cold War, which requires an entirely different mindset and a different set of rules and a different set of uh, 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 ways of operating. And so the U.S. military, the Congress, the process, is still gearing up to really address and, and deliver the types of capabilities that are needed. And I think we're, we're probably five years away from it. Uh, Bill, that's a, a, a chilling observation and a, and a perfect segue to, to turn over to you, Leslie, because I know one of your, well, maybe two of your pet peeves are one, always talking about the future as opposed to what we can do now. And two is not thinking um, big enough and investing big enough in our own R&D infrastructure capacities here in Australia. Uh, do you share Bill's concerns and do they apply to the Australian case? Uh, yes, I think um, I, you know, I've been known to say before that we thought we'd won the Cold War as well. A very similar sort of situation where we thought we won. We can all sit back and relax. We can, uh, uh, you know, engage in what Tim Snyder refers to as the politics of inevitability. She'll be right, mate. You don't have to worry about that. And what that's done is, again, it, combine that with the efficiency paradigm that is government, you know, again, in issues around government investment, how they manage some of these innovation you know, systems and so on. 
and the general outsourcing of capability from governments. And you, we've ended up in a system that is very fragile, rather weak. We're not really willing to accept risks. We're not really willing to accept uh, what uh, Sally Ann Williams from Cicada refers to as that patient capital. These things do take time, uh, but there is that sort of uh, uh, drive for the immediate all the time. And we're very good at just going for single point solutions. So we need to actually build that capability up around strategy and straight craft again. Uh, too long we've been able to rely on the US, frankly, and we keep looking to the US to say on the strategy side, so how do you see the, you know, the, big, the big picture and where do we fit into that? And on the statecraft side, we've never really had to sort of think about the integration of domestic capability into um, a, a means of uh, exerting uh, influence or power in the region, except perhaps, you know, with the exception perhaps of the South Pacific. Uh, and even there, we've looked to Silicon Valley, sort of saying, well, we want one of those. You know, how can we order that up? Uh, in the discussion before, as, as uh, we started, as I was saying, we haven't really got to grips with understanding what that ecosystem looks like. And that ecosystem consists of patient capital, investment, building up the seed corn, which at the moment is being eroded as we sort of uh, uh, cut away at R&D, particularly in universities, but also CSIRO itself has been over a 30, 40 year journey where it's been pushed more and more into the applied side of things. Um, getting the right talent, and by the right talent, it is not just STEM. If you just want STEM and that's it, you're, you're driving down a more utilitarian society. Uh, and I don't think that's really what we want either. So I always say the operative function here is and. It is not STEM or humanities and social science. It is STEM and humanities and social sciences. And one of the things I keep telling people in government too, you think you want you know, STEM because it will give you machine learning or sensors or those sort of things. Those are important. But where the applications are, what is often driving the development of these can be found in the creative industries. For example, you take NVIDIA. You know, it started off by building chips for games. Uh, and now it drives the big issues of machine learning in the world. So, you know, there's, there, there, there's this idea of this, um, you know, the conceptual models we're using are wrong and out of date. We need to think about the adjacent possible. We need to think about ecosystems. The last thing I'll say too is that you can't really blame um, researchers in universities who are passionate about what they're doing for following the money. Mm. And at the moment, if the money, frankly, is in China, then they will, that's where they will tend to go because it is certainly not coming from our own system. I've been arguing that we should build that five eyes bubble, if you like, capability, but that requires two-way things. It requires a government and a society that's willing to put all, you know, um, uh, entrenched interests and willing to put those self-interests to one side. And this is where I think the sovereignty argument is both important but also quite dangerous because the sovereignty argument says that, well, we need to have people build stuff here uh, to the exclusion of some of our friends and allies, which we share both strategic interests and value sets. And that's something we need to actually build a more mature discussion on as well. And on that point precisely, Leslie, not only is it uh, denying access to potentially um, trusted partners and allies that share our values and interests, but if it is the case, as I think is the premise of both the third offset strategy and the 2018 national defense strategy, as well as the efforts um, um, build to reform the, the NTIB to bring in allies like Australia, if the assumption of all of that is essentially that the United States cannot maintain a technological edge vis-a-vis -vis China into the future by itself and needs to pull resources within the tent, bringing together the five eyes and key countries like Japan, perhaps, uh, then not have, having that sovereignty approach and having a legislative framework that is not nutted out uh, with close allies and partners to enable that cross-pollination is a strategic disadvantage. As Brendan points out, the, the, the spending by China on R&D looking forward in PPP terms dwarfs that of the five eyes combined, or at least comes very close to matching it in the short term. That is the problem we're trying to solve. Um, can I ask all of you, if we are thinking about, um, and we put aside political and industrial policy uh, and, and legislative um, constraints for the moment, and if we are thinking about uh, Australia and the United States and the Five Eyes more broadly as a unit that is trying to strengthen its technological advantage vis-a-vis -vis China in strategic areas, 
Should we be doing this in ways that uh, play to competitive advantages, for example, Australia and quantum or hypersonics? Should we be doing this in ways uh, that, um, that foster um, ecosystems that are more multi-dimensional or, or plural in each country? Um, is there lessons to be learned from your research into these things, Leslie? Uh, I would say that, I mean, we're a small country. We're also prone to, uh, or comparable, I mean, I rage against people who say we're a small country. We're a medium-sized country with capabilities of a niche that we should be making more greater advantage of. But we also need to think of that not as a point solution, which tends to be the way we do things, more as a, a pyramid. This is where we're actually trying to get that niche. But below here, we're building up a range of capability in, uh, you know, in every, the STEM subjects, the math subjects, and so particularly maths. Maths is one of my bugbears as well. We need to teach that better. But um, about the, the, the narrative, what is this for? How can we build the people who are going to manage this and see this for markets? I'm also a great fan of learning by doing. So this is why I say, again, those niche capabilities, those things where we can actually do this thing in the field and do it well, that will put places in better position for building that out. Yeah, and actually on that point, Leslie, I'm encouraged to see, although it's at a small level, um, Bill, you might have been tracking this as well, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which is making its way through Congress, uh, which will essentially allow the Indo US Indo-Pacific Command to actually have greater latitude for experimentation with new technologies, including in the field at an operational level. It's a small start, but it's one that's regionally focused and at least tries to inculcate that culture within DOD, which is often mired by fragmentation of services versus commands versus industry, et cetera. Uh, but Bill, um, to, to Leslie's point, do you see um, the, the, the best practice for maintaining a competitive advantage in the technological sphere vis-a-vis -vis China to be collective action where we specialize as well as diversify within the, uh, as well as focus on niche uh, areas within the five eyes? You know, I, I think it's going to be a, a two-step process. Ideally, we should we should get our engineers on you know on the four countries together, working on hard problems, sharing technology. Uh, we have, you know the U.S. has to remember that you know we, we had a head start in World War II when the Brits gave us pretty much everything they they had. We we, we need to start doing that. But the way to get there, because to to overcome some of those domestic uh, issues that we have that we think that we can do everything. Australia, the Brits, the Canadians, the Japanese, the Koreans are going to have to probably specialize in certain comparative advantages that they are so much better than we are that breaks this mold in the U.S. that says we can do everything because we can't. But we have to, it has to be proven to us. And I think that's the first step in the process. And the NTIB is the way to share that information, but each country has to break the mold. Yeah, and can I just add one thing there, um, Ash? Yeah. One of the things I, I, when doing the report and just from an Australian perspective was realizing that the Australian government, our structures are not set up to really think about R&D in a holistic way. So, and, and I, I know Leslie's probably <laughs> nodding in furious agreement. So we have the Defense Department and uh, they look and they kind of, do some investments in the university sector in, in piecemeal parts to supply niche capability. Um, and then they do their industrial policy that's kind of separate. And then there's the Department of Industry and there's the Department of Education. And each of these different departments are kind of managing and investing and moving pots of money around and, and tinkering with regulations. Uh, for different purposes uh, and actually not really linked up, not thinking actually from a national perspective, how, what do we want R&D to do for Australia? How is it, and some of these, and this is kind of goes back to the core point, how are some of these technologies that are being worked on in our university, some in our private sector, that they have cross application to multiple different areas across society, but also within the government and actually thinking about it in a much more um, holistic way. I, I, I don't know how to quite put it other than that, Leslie, but if you know what I mean, there's this, there's this, it's a very siloed conversation and you almost have to have that yeah. sorted out before then you reach uh, across borders to the NTIB. And Brendan, is that what you had in mind where you call for Australia to focus on building its own technological counterweight, both a focus on sort of strategic areas, a focus on 
exporting those within the alliance as well, but also being less reliant on certain aspects of um, within the tent R and D. Yeah, I'm a bit. I, I so I provocatively used the term industrial policy just because I think that uh, we need to kind of break out of some of the thinking uh, that we kind of scares us away from some of that. And just to even though it may not be termed that, just to think in terms of long term, in, in longer terms. So. I, uh, you know, I, I purposely use the idea of South Korea, which has had effectively a, a science and technology industrial policy since the late 1990s with stunning success, uh, quite frankly, with, you know, significant and, and, and Australia is very different from South Korea. The markets are different. Uh, the industrial makeup is different. But and so it may not be the perfect example. And I fully admit that. But. Uh, it was trying to look at something in a long-term gain and what, what do we want to be in 30 years and actually how are we going to have the review processes that go, go forward with that. I always use the, uh, the example of quantum computing in Australia, which was a government investment 20 years ago uh, that is now spinning off private companies uh, in, in Australia and Canberra and elsewhere and it'll, it'll be a growth industry. And that was a, that was a long-term investment. Uh, that was backed by government and yeah, you know, they, they chose a winner, I guess, but it was pretty, uh, it was, it was a bet, but it was a good one. And sometimes you have to take on those risks. So. Bill, did you want to jump in on this conversation? Uh, I've got some questions from the audience for, for when you, when you have. No, I just, the one point I would make, like to make is that uh, Australia and our allies have great possibilities of doing something that the United States is not doing well enough. And that's bringing in dual use technology. That's partnering with Silicon Valley. That's the, so all of these, these type of things, I, I think that there, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a market niche in the sense that, you know, you're going to build a, a missile, but, but bringing in a different type of industrial base and solving national security problems, I think is something that, that all of our allies can do and probably do better than we can. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've got I've got a number of questions from the audience here. I'm going to give two to begin with that I think are complementary. Um, the first of them is that are there any signs of third countries like the EU, the UK, Singapore, Canada, for example, that are looking to take advantage of US visa restrictions, um, the ones that Brendan's mentioned uh, that have come into force to attract talent that would otherwise have gone to the United States. So that is attracting global talent um, to third countries. And should Australia get into this game? Uh, the complementary question um, from another colleague is should Australia adopt strategies to attract Chinese scientists specifically that the US is now working on uh, to restrict? And if so, in what conditions and which type of scientists? Um, Leslie, I think we might, you might be joining us again in a moment. I think we've just had a, a web glitch there. So Brendan, I'll go to you first and then over to you, Bill. Yeah, it's easy. So um, the, so Canada is a really good example of this and I'm slightly biased, obviously, as my dual citizenship, but I will try to be as neutral as possible. But Canada sort of saw the writing on the wall at the beginning of the Trump administration um, in 2017 and knew that there was going to be obviously uh, immigration uh, crackdown in some ways or po new policies that would make it more difficult, I should say, for some of these high-tech uh, entrepreneurs and STEM graduates and what have you to not only come into the United States, but also stay, stay there. And so they actually conducted a pretty significant campaign of billboards and technology hotspots in Silicon Valley and Austin and, and on the East Coast to and they created a special visa class um, that's actually been pretty successful and now you see uh, especially in artificial intelligence and machine learning centers being set up in Vancouver and also uh, in Toronto and in and around Montreal so they've been very successful in sort of taking advantage of this and Australia largely wasn't um, there was some overflow uh, back to Australia in terms of an uptick in kind of um, some of the visa classes that we have open for our technology intake. But we were, uh, and I'm not sure the reason why, but we just did not, uh, did not sort of take advantage of this fact. And, and, not, and, and this sort of goes against the spirit of, guess what we're talking about. I don't mean it in that way, but if there was that policy going to come through, it would have been better for those uh, those individuals and those uh, people to come to an NTIB country, obviously, then to to then go back potentially to where they've come from. And then briefly on the 
on the China scientist thing. I think that, and I kind of touched on this earlier, I think it's pretty clear that um, it's not necessarily in the national interest of Australia or the United States to have Chinese scientists associated with the PLA studying technologies and working on technologies that are also can be uh, applied or are directly related to military capability. Um, but if uh, there are no PLA associations, then there should be welcomed, obviously, into our technology ecosystems. And I don't really see um, any issue with that. Bill, can I get your take on that? Well, I mean, I think it, you know, depends upon, um, uh, you know, what, what individuals are studying, where they're going to go, if they're going to stay. Uh, I, I, you know, we, we, we have to guard against the, the idea that we're going to just train the technological elite of, of, of China. At the same time, um, uh, I can't imagine spending four to eight years in America, Australia, the UK, or Canada can't uh, put all sorts of... Uh, uh, nefarious ideas about political freedom in uh, in students' heads. So uh, maybe it's not a bad thing to send them back. Yeah, and look, um, uh, rather than asking you, Bill, to comment on um, you know whether Australia should be in the game of poaching uh, U.S. direct U.S. Uh, heading talent in the wake of new visa restrictions, I might ask you instead a question from another one of our colleagues, Lincoln Parker at the Defence Innovation Network. Um, uh, which, uh, you know, and, and his work is, is really focused at uh, the University of Sydney in trying to find ways for Australian innovators to get around and get access, get around NTI, uh, ITAR restrictions rather, and get access to US and, and as well as other Australian uh, defence contracts. How do or how should we as Australians or us as, as, as an alliance approach the issue of the creep in ITARs and other restrictions with regards to defence technology collaboration? And, and do you have any good ideas for how to push that needle? The, uh, I would look at the, some of the best practices that have occurred through other countries uh, and firms who have uh, achieved successful integration of their technology uh, in the United States. And um, uh, there, there have been a number of Norwegian uh, firms who've done this and, 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 a, and a few British firms and have been able to protect their intellectual property even uh, through uh, uh, cooperation with the United States. You have to do that until we have these discussions on how to, to, to reduce the ITAR taint and the extraterritorial application of just having our engineers and your engineers at a private sector level sit down and, and, and discuss these national security issues. So barring that, your companies can have to be very careful on how they do that if they want to sell their, their product and technology abroad somewhere else. If they don't, you know, ITARs can, be, can work just fine. And look, on that note, I'm going to pivot back to you, Brendan, and then Leslie, I'll, come, I'll bring you into the conversation. Glad that I think you're back with us uh, now. Um, but Brendan, um, you and I are co-authors in a multi-authored piece we released uh, today ahead of Osmin 2020, where we make 10 recommendations to government on policy initiatives that should be um, approached at Osmin this year in order to strengthen resilience in the Indo-Pacific and within the Alliance. One of those recommendations draws on your work and has to do with elevating the level of discussion between Australia and the US on making the NTIB not just a legislative framework, but a reality, escalating that to the cabinet level, working with Congress in order to do that. Um, can you tease out the argument and why you see that as essential? Yeah, and I should say that, you know, Bill is, Bill is the godfather of this right. area. So I feel a bit talking about NTIB issues, but I'll uh, basically... The... Give, us your, give us your Australian ally <laughs> elevator pitch. Right, yeah. So, uh, so one of the problems that I've seen is the NTIB is, and especially from the Australian side, is that, there, uh, well, there's two issues. One is that it's largely still it's in part still a political problem in the United States in terms of reform that further reform. Uh, and Bill, you correct me if I'm wrong here, that has to go through Congress that NTIB was set up as a framework that then was really a vessel in some ways to be then filled out and to act as a sort of um, battering ram for some of these other 
um, reforms that had to take place, some of them involving ITAR, that's, a, that's inherently going to be a political discussion um, and within Congress at some level. And that talking to people uh, in the uh, Commerce Department or in the executive, they, or in, in quite frankly, within the Defense Department, that where our NTIB discussions primarily connect with from our government to the Defense Department, the Defense Department only has so much power actually over this issue. A lot of the problems uh, or a lot of the issues that need to be reformed are held within the State Department and Commerce and then obviously within Congress. So it seemed to me that there was always, uh, you know, a little bit of a mismatch in terms of some of the kind of broader issues that need to be brought into the NTIB, that having our Defense Department talk to the Pentagon about NTIB issues, it can all be in furious agreement, but if the State Department doesn't agree that ITAR has to be reformed or the Senate, Arm, Senate, Senate Foreign Relations Committee and, or doesn't agree, then it's sort of, you're not bringing in all the actors that have, to be, that have to be present. So, you know, the argument was to be not only elevate the level of discussion um, politically, but also possibly realign the way our, our government talks to your government in terms of um, who actually has responsibility over some of the really core issues um, that have to be reformed. Yeah, look, I think we have time for one last question. Leslie, I'm going to go to you. It's from Raymond Harvey at Cider House. Uh, and, it, and it sort of brings everything back to the context of COVID-19 in which we unfortunately will likely be for some time. Um, does the COVID-19 provide an opportunity to shift Australia's economy back towards self-sufficiency. Uh, that term hasn't been defined, Leslie. I know it's not one that you would subscribe to, um, but could you explain perhaps why, from your perspective, self-sufficiency is the wrong approach when it comes to uh, technological generation writ large? Okay, there's two reasons. One is the economic reason, and that is, again, we are, uh, the structure of our economy is such that we actually do need to build and build, get investment um, to be able to invest into things. We, need, we do need global markets. We are a free market society, liberal democratic free market society. And I think that um, rather than following a juche type um, approach, we really do need to, sort of, you know, again, integrate with the world. We've got investment in the world and we need the world to, work, you know, to invest in us as well. So that's the economic argument. Yeah. Uh, the second argument is around the nature of science and technology. Uh, you need people with talent to be you know, to attract them to the country. Uh, technology R and D requires the interaction of ideas, uh, and you cannot pretend that you're going to be the only place that gets you know to get and build ideas. Now, I think what uh, COVID is likely to do. COVID is both accelerating a number of trends and is being very disruptive. It's going to innovate a number of uh, sectors and it's going to be putting, you know, uh, uh, you know, bring to the forefront a number of other sectors. And I mean, this is exactly, you know, this sort of thing, the ICT, for example, is exactly the point and all the things that go around that. So it's, it is a bit disappointing that we don't have anyone that we could say, you know, we've got, you know, this, this would be a perfect showcase to sort of put in front um, our ICT capability, but we've let a lot of these things decline. Uh, so there's a balance here that we have to strike, in particularly in the government procurement space, because a lot of the patient capital, a lot of the low risk, uh, or sorry, the high risk activities should be in the public sector rather than the other way around. They're not, you know, business will tend to go towards the low risk. Uh, there's a high risk, long return things, which really should be in the public sector. So I'd like to see as a result of COVID, government starting to invest in those longer term uh, comparably high risk moonshots, the um, the big difficult hard challenges that Bill referred for to, for example, and start building around those things. And we have an opportunity to do this now because, you know, never let you know, never let a good crisis go you know go un, un, unused. Uh, so let's actually do that and build that out. Absolutely, Leslie. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, this conversation uh, today has sort of reinforced two of the key issues that we keep coming back to in the US, at the US Study Center Foreign Policy and Defense Program, in terms of our deterrence work, our defense technology work, our Indo-Pacific strategy work. And that is that you get the regional order and the capabilities that you pay for and that you invest in. Uh, and secondly, that collective action is the only way to deal with the problems that we face uh, and the problems that we're facing across the board, whether that's uh, in terms of technology generation or whether that's in terms of military strategy. Uh, but those two, 
issues should, in my view, at least be the lodestars with, with, with which we approach a lot of these policy conversations. We're at 11 o'clock, everyone. Before I thank our panelists, I'd like to give Brendan uh, the final word. Um, if you could have one, uh, one aspect of your recommendations to government acted upon in the coming year, Brendan, in light of this conversation, where would you draw our policymakers' attention? Um, I actually, I mean, I'll echo Leslie's previous comments that I think that, you know, I make the case that there is, the time is now to kind of make some of these investments in long-term strengthening our own R&D capability. Uh, and you, it's only going to become more fractured, I think, over time. And so, you know, investing in our own ability to uh, generate our own IP, our own capital, and our own talent um, will kind of provide resilience across a range of measures. We've seen that in the COVID response in the biomedical field. Um, it just makes perfect sense to me. So um, I think that the kind of long-term investment recommendation that I make and the kind of looking at a national R&D strategy, uh, whatever form that kind of takes, I think I would, I would um, lobby for that sounds like a very good suggestion to me, Brendan, and I look forward to uh, hearing and, and reading in advance your lobbying efforts in the op-ed pages <laughs> over the coming months. Uh, everyone, please, uh, in your own way, in your own living rooms, uh, please join me in thanking uh, Leslie Seabeek, uh, Bill Greenwald, and our very own Brendan Thomas Noon for what I think has been a fantastic conversation. As always, we thank you for your attention and interest in US Study Center work. And I will just flag that later this week, our CEO, Simon Jackman, will have a very interesting webinar um, with uh, uh, David Kilcullen um, later this week. So, uh, sorry, I, I, I beg your pardon. With Jonathan Swan later this week, David Kilcullen is coming up later in the month. Uh, both will be extremely interesting. So stay tuned to US Study Center events for that. Uh, again, thank you all and uh, have a great day.